Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. And today we are going to glean some wisdom from Dr. Neil Frank, former director of the National Hurricane Center. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Frank. You heard the first part in my last episode. This time around, I'm going to ask him a few questions involving CO2. He's a part of the CO2 Coalition. And as an advocate of CO2, and who wouldn't be, I'm just going to ask him why, why he thinks CO2 is so vilified. Then I'm also going to ask him, what is driving this climate change agenda from his perspective? As a guy who's 92, what's, what's driving this agenda? And then I'm going to ask him for his personal story. I think you'll find it fascinating. When he was in, when he was in his 30s, that's quite a long time ago, he decided that he would scientifically prove there was no God. How did that work out for him? It's an amazing story. I'm sure that many of you will enjoy that. A little housekeeping. I just completed an interview with Tony Heller. Tony is from realclearscience.com. He's got a great website. His Twitter feed is also just off the chart spicy. But his story is, first of all, he's a hilarious guy. (laughs) But his story is amazing because he was a geologist and then became an electrical engineer. He was working for Intel. He was a, a global warming believer until 2006 when he decided to check out the temperature record for himself. And what he found was so astounding in terms of its mismanagement and manipulation that that flipped him. And he became not just a skeptic, but a denier of anthropogenic global warming. So that's going to be a great interview. I am also thrilled and honored to have Professor Judith Curry joining us on this program. Uh, She, of course, is just a a wonderful atmospheric scientist, and she has a new book out that many of you have probably read, Climate, Uncertainty, and Risk. So Dr. Curry is going to be joining us on the program. I am honored to have been asked to be a part of the Tom Nelson podcast. Uh, Tom has some of the the biggest and brightest minds in atmospheric science on. I'm certainly not one of those. I'm just basically a, a pundit, really, and a guy who's written a couple of books. But to be on his program is just going to be a great opportunity to talk about my upcoming book, Climate Cult. Now, it's possible, as you're watching this, the book may be available to order right now, any day, actually any hour, it's going to hit uh, the online stores. So again, it's Climate Cult, Exposing and Defeating Their War on Life, Liberty, and Property. In fact, while I've got this screenshot of the cover up, I'm going to go to Amazon right now and there. Okay. All right. It's up. You can see it for yourself. So you can pre-order now and you will have it in May. You get a guaranteed price of $18.99. It's a high quality paperback. That's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to keep the prices down so more people would read this book. Order it now. Pre-sales make a huge dent, a huge impact, a huge statement to the uh, publishing industry. So, all right. Praise God. And then one other item. um, John Harris. John Harris. One other item. John Harris has a tremendous podcast. He's with Liberty University. And John Harris has asked me to come on his program because there is 
a concerted effort going on right now to bring the church in to the climate change movement. And they're using a lot of a lot of propaganda and a lot of emotional arm twisting to bring people in to what I call the climate cult. And so somebody needs to talk about this. I'm well equipped to do so. And I know what John wants to ask me because this has been something on his heart as I've been paying attention to his podcast lately. There is There has been a redefinition of social justice and social equity in our society today. And what I reveal in the book Climate Cult is that the new social justice, the new social equity is, is linked at the hip with the climate change agenda. This is actually something that was put forth in UN documents decades ago, and now it is catapulted onto the stage, especially with the help of the WEF. So I can't wait to be on John Harris's podcast it's going to be a lot of fun, and I appreciate all these people reaching out to me and, and others who have accepted invitations to come on this podcast. So there's a lot going on, and for more information, just go to briansussman.com, and I'll try to keep you appraised of what's happening right there. In the meantime, let's return now to our interview with Dr. Hurricane. That's Dr. Neil Frank. Okay, so this brings up a great point, because I know you're associated with the CO2 coalition. And I look at that roster of scientists who are associated with that coalition, and I'm thinking these are some big-time academicians, uh, PhDs with lots and lots of years of research under their belt. They're credible people. So when I look at that roster, which includes, by the way, Dr. John Clauser, a Nobel That's Prize right. recipient, I'm wondering what the disconnect is. How could people discredit all of that brain power? That's my question to you. Would you take a look at the age of the people that are very active in the carbon dioxide coalition? They're not younger and they don't work for the government. Okay. Most of them are retired or they live or their occupation is in some adventure that wouldn't be uh, affected by global warming. And yet the tremendous wisdom, as you point out, the tremendous wisdom that is that in that group of, of people is amazing. But you make a, an excellent point, Dr. Neal. The people that are most outspoken about this are, are older. They're not dependent upon government funding of any kind so they can freely speak out, whereas the others are kind of harnessed. Their, their lips are sealed because right. they got to put bread on the table. Dr. Joanne Simpson, I don't know whether that name rings. Oh, yes. No, I, I, I know of her very well. Yes. Okay. Well, her you know, I worked for Dr. Simpson. Right. Um, that was, I was his deputy for three years before he retired. Yeah, so met. she was, well, she was married a, to another meteorologist. Yeah, but she would then have married my boss. Yes. And so she took the name Dr. Simpson. Yes. Well, they went to Washington, D.C., and she was one of the premier uh, meteorologists in, in NASA at that time. And she was very careful about any statements about global warming. But when she retired, she once she said, I'm now free 
to make the statement that I want to make, and I want you to know I'm a skeptic. Talk to us about CO2. It's it's essential for life. Right. Why do you think it's so vilified, doctor? Well, it's vilified because global warming, the reason for global warming doesn't have anything to do with carbon dioxide destroying the atmosphere. It has to do with the fact that our economy is is in jeopardy by changing over to um, the, the, you know to green energy. Yeah. Now let's talk about carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is a very minor, 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 minor gas. <laughs> okay, as you have pointed out in your book. Uh, but the other thing that is very, very important is it is a miracle gas, as I like to call it. Mm -hmm. Without carbon dioxide, all plants die, and that means all humans die. Uh, the carbon dioxide levels for the last 10,000 years have averaged in the range of two in the 200s, maybe average 250 or two, something like that. Well, it's raised up now to 400. Um, I don't know whether people know this or not, but if the carbon dioxide levels ever drop below 180, all plants die. And we were very close to that at times during the last 10,000 years. So it's interesting now that it's up to 400. And what we're finding is that there is a significant greening of the planet that we think is because of carbon dioxide. Um, it's interesting to uh, look at nurseries. People who can control their carbon dioxide in nurseries bump the levels up to 1,200 to 1,500, three to four times what is today. They know the secret. Uh, so the, the big question, and I've often asked this of the climate alarmists, what is the optimum level of carbon dioxide? Right. They don't know. Yeah, they'll never give well, you that answer. no. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Let's also talk about the warming of the planet. If if indeed, well, whenever we experience warming uh, and, and long-term warming at that, and I'm thinking of the medieval warm period, yeah. uh, you noticed some wonderful benefits to society at large. So if we had warmer weather, you would think that the temperate zones would expand. We'd be able to grow more food. This could actually be beneficial for humankind. Your thoughts on that? Well, we've been warming for the last 175 years, and I am delighted. <laughs> I don't want to go back and experience some of the winters that Washington had when he was in Valley Forge. The Little or Ice in Age. Europe, yeah, hundreds of thousands of people died because of crop failures. And it the, the weather was so cold at that time that the Thames River froze solid enough that they could have winter carnivals on top of the ice. <laughs> I don't want to do that, okay? <laughs> but it's interesting to take a look at a sequence of the Earth's temperatures. The Earth's temperature tend to occur in cycles. The longest cycle that we're aware of is the Ice Age. They last 100,000 years, separated by a 10,000-year warm period. We're living in one of those warm periods. We've been in this warm period about 11,000 years, as a matter of fact. And it's interesting to note that the temperature in the warm period that we are experiencing is the coldest of the last three warm periods 
in the last four ice ages. Not the hottest. We're living in the warmest and in the coldest. And furthermore, if you take a look at the temperature over the last 10,000 years, you'll find that there is a thousand year cycle in the temperature. Every thousand years, it's warm. That's where we are. We're at one of those thousand year peaks. A thousand years ago, as you indicated in your book, we had the medieval warm period when they farmed in Greenland for some 400 years. And prior to that, we had the Roman period 2,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago was when Europe uh, or Egypt and many of the countries in the Middle East thrived. So if let's talk about this in terms of the historical record. This has to probably irritate you to no end how the record has been so obliterated medieval warm period little ice age right. this as a scientist as a guy who's dedicated his life to yeah. science and specifically meteorology this really has to irritate you well there's no question about it and when you look back a thousand years ago the temperature was warmer than we are experiencing right now so we could go up a little bit more and still not be as warm as it was a thousand years ago and they thrived a thousand years ago mm -hmm. and, and you know i'm personally i do a lot better you know i'm 92 years old i can go back to some pretty cold winters in my early period in kansas I don't want to go back to those same winters again. I have seen and I have progressed, and I think that I've done much better in the warm than during those cold periods. One of the things I talk about in Climate Cult, as you know, and by the way, I would just maybe like to stop and thank you so much for your wonderful endorsement. Yeah. Uh, I had literally, I was literally praying about ways I could somehow get this book to you. I didn't know you at the time. I was literally praying, how can I get this book to Dr. Neil Frank? I think he would like it. Maybe he would give me an endorsement. Well, things worked out, and I was able to get you uh, the manuscript. You were able to read it. Thank you for your wonderful endorsement, Dr. Neil. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Well, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that you go back to Marxist philosophy. And this whole concept of environmentalism goes back a long ways. But see, I'm convinced, I've been watching for 25 or 30 years, what is causing the support for this global warming? Um, maybe it's money. Yeah, that's true. Al Gore did very well. <laughs> I think he, I saw one place where he, after he left the presidency or the vice presidency, he invested in 40, 14 green energy companies subsidized by the federal government for two and a half billion dollars. Well, he's done very well. He's a multimillionaire, maybe a billionaire today. <laughs> or maybe it's just power, political power. And I accept that. But that doesn't justify the worldwide commitment to this global warming alarmist. And so you bought in this whole question of Marxists. And I believe that that is the primary reason for this. Um, this nation is in trouble. And you were the first of the meteorologists that I've seen that has stressed that point. And I compliment you for that. I appreciate your, your compliments on that. It's very important to me. These, these discussions are vital and I'm hoping, I'm believing we're changing some minds along the way, Dr. Neal. 
Well, part of the problem we have today is the young people will not pay attention to the older folks that have that sure. wisdom. Uh, our colleges have, are, have become training centers mm -hmm. for a Marxist-type philosophy. Yeah. Okay, well, this this nicely takes us to another part of this interview that I think is very important. I find your Christian story to be very intriguing because here you were, a scientist, someone devoted to your profession, and you at one point in time thought, I'm going to scientifically prove there is no God. Do I have that part of the story correct? Absolutely. <laughs> no, I was born and raised in Northwest Kansas in a very strong Christian environment. And in that sense, I inherited a stringent set of moral values. And I lived by both those moral values all my life. And my wife was born in that same kind of a community. Uh, I had... I went to church all the time, and so I was born and raised within the church, but I didn't, I had never really, really made a commitment to it. And I came out of church one day and ran into a friend of mine, and he said, what are you doing in church? And I said, well, we've got small children. We think it's important that they be here and and be trained in, in the right moral standards. And he said, if there's something here for them, don't don't you think there might be something here for you? Now that made me angry because we were active in the church as a young married couple. We were, I was the president of the Sunday school class and my wife was teaching in the Sunday school program. But I went home and it took me a couple of days before the anger subsided. And I began to reflect back on that question. I said, well, what am I doing there? Hmm. I, uh, I just didn't know. Hmm. And I said, you know, I need to find out. I need to determine. Uh, what this godly Christian thing is. Why am I wasting my time here if, if there is no God? So I decided that I would collect some data and I would at least read. I made a commitment to myself to, to read something in terms of the Christian faith, Bible, for example, at least an hour a day for the next six months. And at the end of that time, I was going to list the things that were for God and against God. And if I'm honest with you tonight, I set out to prove that there was no God. Mm. And that didn't work out at all. God didn't cooperate. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there are two things that I struggled with. The first one was the question of sin. I had the preconceived notion that sin was a specific act. If you weren't involved in the act, then what made you a sinner? And let me tell you, I wasn't involved in the act. You know that I had... In my entire lifetime, I never heard my grandparents or my parents ever swear. My grandmother was about five feet tall, and she threatened me one time, if I ever hear you swear, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. No. I saw my granddad in, in a few situations with wild horses, and I think an appropriate verbal outbreak could have been in order. But he never yielded that. Uh, nobody in my family ever drank or ever smoked. I don't say that with any sense of pride, nor do I say it with any sense of shame. That's just where I was born. So I had the preconceived notion that sin was a specific act. And if anyone, I went down to the to the local uh, to the local pool hall and had a beer, the, oh yeah, that's an act. <laughs> okay, but I wasn't involved in that. So my struggle is I didn't understand what sin was. But during my reading, uh, I, I came into testimonies. 
And as I started reading testimonies, I saw that something happened, that they would confess that they were a sinner, and then they would invite Christ into their life and something changed. So what is this question of sin? And then I finally saw a definition of sin in an Amplified Bible. It said, sin is anything that does not conform to God's will in purpose, in thought, and in action. Yeah, the action's there. But what about my purpose in life? And who was controlling my life? And if I was in the kingdom of God by going to church, if I was in the kingdom of God, why didn't I get up every morning and ask the God, ask the king what he wanted me to do? And if I wasn't doing that, who was controlling my life? Well, it didn't take me long to figure that out. Old King Self was on the throne. And for the first time in my life, I said, uh-uh, I'm a sinner because I have a selfish nature. I was born with a greedy, selfish nature. And regardless of whether I ever commit to that greedy, selfish nature, commit an act, I'm still a sinner because of for the first time, I saw that I wasn't in the kingdom. Wow. That was a major, major breakthrough. And the second point was this person of Jesus Christ. See, I'd been doing enough reading now, and I knew that Jesus was a historical figure, and he worked the face of the earth some 2,000 years ago. He may have been the finest person that ever lived. He was a great teacher, the type of a person I could uh, I could relate to and, and form my life after his pattern. But what did he have to do with me in modern Miami? It just it didn't make sense. Academically, it just didn't make sense. But as I read these testimony after testimony after testimony, somehow when they invited Christ to come into the light, a change took place. And I mean, a major change took place. And so one day driving to work down a busy straight interstate highway, I just looked up and I said, God, if my selfish creating nature makes me a sinner, I confess to being a sinner. And other people have asked Christ to come into their life. And if there's a Jesus floating around out there in the sky someplace, I invite you to come into my life. And you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> I didn't see. I didn't have any lightning strikes. I didn't hear the heavenly choir. I just puttered on down to work. Got home that night. I'm still trying to prove that there's no God. Picked up my Bible and began to read it. And I said, whoa. And I understood things that I didn't understand the night before. Wow. And Jesus made perfect sense. And then I found out in 2 Corinthians where I was. In 2 Corinthians, it says, but there is a veil over the eyes of the unbeliever that they cannot discern the truth. But when you turn in repentance, that veil is lifted. And my veil got lifted. But more important, I believe at that time, when I invited Christ to come into my life, the great God of this universe planted a seed inside of me. I don't know where, but it's inside of me. Mm-hmm. And it's that seed that, that brings a revelation background. That is so great. Well, fantastic. Uh, God bless you, my friend. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. And boy, your book is right on. Uh, I hope that uh, some of these very strong uh, skeptics will begin to be sensitive to the truth that you're bringing out in your book. This is a Marxist move, and we've got to wake up to that. Amen. 
Well, I certainly hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Neil Frank. Thank you for your encouragement, your good words of support. I look forward to being with you next time. And don't forget, wherever you may be listening or watching, please subscribe. Until next time.